welcome to The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. Clarion are one of the leading law firms in Leeds with a team of experienced and dedicated lawyers who are passionate about helping their clients achieve their goals. For Clarion, it's all about relationships. They know that strong partnerships create energy and deliver better results for you. In this podcast, we'll get to know some of Clarion's lawyers, reveal some of the law surrounding pop culture, and find out how Clarion's holistic approach develops effective and practical long-term client solutions by fully understanding both the business and the prevailing market. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this episode, how much of the law portrayed on the big and small screen is actually authentic? It's the big question we've all been asking. Can Ken legally move into Barbie's mansion? We'll find out shortly. One of the most controversial ways I tried to find of justifying Ken moving in was that he could have Barbie declared dead. Since language, culture, and the law vary across the world, how can Clarion help your business expand into new international markets? I think the starting point is the fear of the unknown. It's that opportunity to do something that could revolutionise your business, and yet it feels quite intimidating. But first, how do you start out in the legal profession? Our first guests today joining us in the Purple Chair are Melissa Rycroft and Brandon Bradley, both newly qualified associates at Clarion. Hi, Melissa. Hello, Brandon. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. So, Melissa, we'll start with you. Tell us about your route into the law. What was it when you were at school and making your decisions that attracted you in the first place? So I very much wanted a traditional career that I would be respected for, let's say. And I probably started quite young, about age 12, when I started watching lots of crime shows on TV. So I was questioning the rights and wrongs behind the show. And that's kind of how I ended up in the law. I'm not sure how that correlates to being a commercial property lawyer, but that is kind of where my interest in the law definitely started. Okay. And, and, and Brandon, was it a similar story to you? Were you watching crime dramas and getting through that way or was it, uh, was it something else? I definitely watched a few legal dramas in my time, but I really liked history and politics at school. Going to university law was something which was still kind of like the same skill set writing essays, making arguments, but it was just something new that I wanted to try. So it was only really when I was at university and going through the rounds of applications and stuff like that was when I decided that career in law was probably what I wanted to do. Melissa, then to you now, how did you find studying for the law? Because it's not the easiest of courses to go through. It is is very involved, isn't it? And a lot of case law to remember and, and things like that, I guess. There is, but that's why I became a transactional lawyer because there's not much case law behind it then. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a long process. I think it took me nine years in total from start to finish. What I would just say is it's hard, but any degree is hard. It's going to get you where you want to get at the end of the day. Definitely transactional lawyer with less case law for me. <laughs> and, and how about you, Brandon? Um, obviously you mentioned there you like doing essays and making arguments. So from that point of view, you're all sorted. But how did you find the studying? Just as Melissa said, it is hard. It is difficult. Especially when you're studying, there is a lot of case law, a lot of plain old remembering, remembering names, remembering basically stories essentially about what happened in different cases. And it is a lot to commit to your mind. But once you're in that exam hall, it all pays off eventually, like all the work you put in. And if you find it interesting, you'll enjoy it. So you finish your degree and then you're looking around for a company to do your training contracts. How did you pick Clarion, Melissa, or did that process actually start while you're obviously still studying the degree? So no, the process in picking Clarion, I'd finished my degree and I was the second university to do my legal practice course. I applied to Clarion at that time, but I had no experience in the law. I'd not done any legal career. Unfortunately, I wasn't successful, which in hindsight, it made sense. I had no experience. I'd not done any paralegal role. 
And then actually I kind of fell into Clarion subsequent to that because someone I knew, knew someone at Clarion and there was an active role for a paralegal. And that's when I applied for that. I then got that job in 2019. And then off the back of that, after a few months, I knew Clarion was the firm I wanted to be at. So then I then applied again, second time lucky um, at Clarion for the training contract to start in 2021. And how about you, Brandon? How was the process for you finding Clarion? I wanted to stay at a firm close to where my family is and friends from school and stuff. So it was always going to be a firm in Leeds. And I'd done some experience at other firms and a lot of them are like quite corporate, not as friendly, I would say. So it was like coming through the interview process. It was more like just a conversation. At that stage, I was like, oh, these are people I'd like to surround myself with. I feel like they can help me in my career and stuff. And it seems like a happy place to work, which it is. And then on to the next stage, Brandon, what was your training contract like? How long does it take and and what's it entail? So the training contract takes two years and they're split up into four, six month rotations and they're called seats. And in each seat, you're in a different department for six months. And the idea is you go into each one and from there, you get a taster of what it's like to be in that team. You do the work day to day, you get involved with a load of different work matters. And then after the six months, you go to your next seat. So for example, I started in the private wealth team and then went on to the intellectual property team and the family team and then the employment team. At Clarion as well, there's also a lot of extra stuff to do. So like what you might call at school or university, like the extracurricular stuff. So there's a lot of like volunteering stuff to get involved in, a lot of sport. For example, me and Melissa both stupidly or sensibly did the marathon, the least marathon with work, which was... Hell. <laughs> that's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> exciting. But all that like on, on top of the job as well, like it, it really, the training contract is busy. Your mind has to be switched on across the whole two years, but it's definitely exciting to do because you meet so many people as well. One thing that we've we've talked about before on this podcast is you know, the 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 amount of people that Clarion employ. It's a very busy team and uh, specialists in in all areas. So for you coming through the ranks, Melissa, you must have found some excellent mentors at Clarion with loads of experience to share in whatever it is that you need that experience in. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I think one thing that's very special about Clarion is that we're not all cut from the same cloth. There's loads of lawyers with different backgrounds. We didn't all go to X university. Some didn't even study law. And it's we've all come together to work together. And the experience is just vast. Another special thing as well is that as is an open plan office, for some days I can be sat next to a partner. I would not hesitate turning around to them going, stupid question, but, and they'd give me an answer there and then. And I think that's invaluable. There's so many inspiring people that work at Clarion that make it special. You're now both qualified lawyers, so you, you made it through and, and then you, you specialise in particular parts. And Melissa, you were talking about how you used to watch these crime dramas and all this, but you've actually gone a completely different direction. How did you choose your particular chosen legal area? Yeah, so I'm part of the real estate team specialising in commercial property. What attracted me to that area of work is no two days are the same. I can be doing property due diligence one day for a bank, landlord and tenant work the next day, corporate sport another day. So I think it's just a wide variety of work that's available. That's what definitely drew me into that area. 
I think as well, I knew, as I've mentioned, I knew I was a transactional lawyer very early on. That's where my strengths lie. And despite what my family, partner, colleagues might say, I don't want to argue for a living. I'm very content with all parties working to the same goal. And Brandon, for you? complete opposite of Melissa almost as you're saying (laughs) at university I really enjoyed studying family law which is where I've ended up qualifying now and a lot of that is like points for and against you know I did experience in some of the more transactional seats and that's not where my expertise would be going forward so I think that's definitely how I decided where I wanted to qualify because that just fitted what I was interested in and I think that's the best way to go about picking where you want to qualify ultimately. One thing we've learned about Clarion is the chance of progression, the roots of progression going forward now in your career. So what next for you? How would you like to see your your career unfold now, Brandon? Obviously, it's still very early on and I still very much feel I'm in a bit of a learning phase almost. I've only done six months worth of family law before this point. So going forward, I definitely just want to learn more and get involved with as much of the work as I possibly can. So I think for me, that's what I'm looking forward to is just becoming more knowledgeable and being able to help people with their issues going forward. And for me anyway, Clara, it's definitely a really good environment to facilitate that. The exciting part is neither of us probably know where his career is going to go. We're very much at the early stages. I think now it's all about over the next couple of years, learning as much as possible, broadening his knowledge as much as possible. Until then, we might be in a position where we actually want to specialise in something probably more niche I think at the minute, it's just building confidence, networking, getting to know as many people in the market as possible. But what I do know is that no matter what we do, what we decide to do, Clarion will 100% support us in what we want to do. So that's great. And just finally, um, if you were to give yourself advice 10 years ago, or for anyone else who's wanting to follow in your path into into law, what would be your, your advice for anyone thinking about taking this up as a career? I think this is a bit of a cop out, but I actually found a quote from Matt Twain on this one, which is the secret of getting ahead is getting started. The secret of getting started is breaking your complex, overwhelming tasks into small, manageable tasks and starting on the first one. And I think from that, I think as lawyers and even studying the law, we often avoid the big tasks. We often think, oh, that looks horrendous. Let's pick the easy wins. And we all do it on a daily basis. But I think it's going head on, looking at something. It might be daunting, but breaking it down and thinking, actually, take it bit by bit, hour by hour, day by day, and you'll get there. Take it from someone that's been there. It's taken nine years, but you do get there. And look how many lawyers there are, even just in Leeds. We've all got there. So people that are studying they can get there too wise words from mark twain there Uh, (laughs) over to you brandon now my advice would just be if you want to be a lawyer but you don't know what you want to do that's absolutely fine as shown today me and melissa we're both lawyers at the same firm but we both like and effectively do completely separate jobs so if you go in with a completely open mind willing to try everything that's given to you and you do your best you will find an area that appeals to you Okay, great advice. And uh, thanks very much for speaking to us on the Purple Chair, Brandon and Melissa, and good luck with your legal careers. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. 
Hollywood often plays fast and loose with their portrayal of legal proceedings. To what degree can we rely on the accuracy of the law depicted on both big and small screen? And how does the authenticity, or lack of it, impact our understanding of the law? Our next guest joining us in the purple chair is Nicholas Schwanier, a senior clarion associate specialising in contentious private client issues. Hi, Nicholas. Hi, Ian. This sounds like a fascinating area. And let's start by talking about Hollywood, because people will see things on uh, movies or their favourite dramas, and they see interpretations of law, and maybe they take that into their everyday life. And maybe that could be a mistake. Let's uh, hear about this. So Hollywood has a habit of overly dramatising court cases to fit the narrative of a TV show or movie. As a lawyer, do you find this frustrating? Yeah, (laughs) I can't tell you the number of times I have uh, screamed at my TV screen or in a movie and my poor wife has to hear it all. And she's gotten the the brunt of this saying, oh, this is not realistic or would never work like that. I am concerned about how that affects public perception. Obviously, for myself, I know what to look out for. But the problem is members of the public might not and might get caught out having unrealistic expectations. Are there any particularly prominent examples of, of legal scenarios then from TV or movies that, that might seem realistic, that might seem to stand up, but they wouldn't hold up in a genuine legal context? Yeah, definitely. There's sort of two reasons that you might get that, especially with the type of work that I do. The first one is so much of pop culture is American produced and for an American audience. And you get a lot of people who think that what applies in the US applies in England and Wales. Well, it doesn't. So some examples of shows that might seem realistic are, for example, Suits. That's been plotted by lots of people in the US as being realistic and accurate. It might be for the US context, but it really isn't for England and Wales. You've got things like Discovery. You've got things like Disclosure. These are all things that um, happen very differently in England than they do in the US. And uh, another thing will be social media in the US. Popular representations, for example, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trials. Well, there was a bunch of clips all over social media. That was a very American context. And what you've seen there won't necessarily apply here. The other thing that you'll get is um, a lot of content is for criminal lawyers and criminal cases. It's it's a small part, but a very important part of the work lawyers do. It's not what I do on the day to day. So things that you'll get very different in my line of work than what you'll see in criminal cases are no wigs. I've never worn a wig. I have been in some cases where barristers wear wigs, but it's a very small, small percentage. The other one is jury trials. So we never have jury trials in civil litigation like you would see in the US or like you would see in criminal cases. So lots of things where it might seem realistic, but actually it doesn't apply to the type of work that I do. And what impact can these inaccuracies in the portrayal of law have on public perception and the understanding of the legal system? I think the biggest one is the effect on clients and and client expectations. One of the things that I I have to deal with a lot is the perception of timeframes. So your average legal TV show, every episode will be a different court case. Well, if my life was a TV show, you'd probably need two seasons before you got to trial on any one case. It's a lot longer than people think it will take. And the other one I find is behavior of lawyers. So on TV, you often see the more aggressive lawyer gets away with it and sometimes even wins it all. In my experience, taking an aggressive approach in litigation, especially the type of work that I do, 
working with families, you often find that the more aggressive lawyers, all they do is they annoy the judge and waste time and money. So there's a big difference between what people think a lawyer should be doing and what actually in practice is helpful for a lawyer to do. Now, are there actually any TV shows or movies that you believe might have done a a particularly good job of depicting legal processes accurately? If people want a good representation (laughs) of not necessarily for them to base their court case around, but a good idea of what it's really like. Are there any examples? Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of them. I would say on the whole, if you err on the side of productions made in the UK, so the BBC has a bunch of great TV shows, all different levels on them. One that I particularly liked was Line of Duty, actually, which is a very popular TV show produced here. That one has a really interesting court scene. One of the characters is on trial. It's a criminal case. There's all sorts of issues with evidence. There's a jury because it's a criminal case. I actually thought that did a pretty good job of representing what that might look like. There's a lot of procedural points. The barristers are are presenting themselves very accurately and the judge is is dressed up accurately as well. And most importantly, they don't have a gavel because that's one of the big misconceptions in England. We don't have gavels. One of the things that really has bothered me is you get advertisements for learn to become a lawyer or um, a paralegal and they'll have these clearly mocked up scenes of these students who then become lawyers and then you see them and they've got this courtroom and they've got a gavel and it just it really drives me a bit crazy every time and like I said my my poor wife has heard them all by now so she knows what to look for and and when to uh when to sympathize with me (laughs) and when to go out (laughs) and when to go out exactly exactly on the flip side do you meet clients who are influenced by the law they've seen on tv or at the cinema i don't know they've been watching better call saul and they think they can represent themselves Do do you have that sort of situation to deal with yeah um we do get that on occasion I think part of our job as as lawyers is to address expectations from the start. So the timing one I mentioned earlier is a big one that we need to address head on. I think the other one is lawyers are often seen as as guns for hire. Basically, you have to work for whoever's going to pay you and, and you'll do whatever they tell you to do. In practice, a lot of my work actually is challenging clients and asking loads and loads of questions. So I'm not just there to hear what you have to say, take it for fact, and then repeat that. I'm there to challenge your case, help you build it up, work on gathering the evidence. A lot of it's going to be evidence that might help you or might not help you. And and my job is to go through that meticulously um, and do all the work beforehand, which actually brings me to another point clients don't realize, which is a lot of my work is done before I've ever set foot in a courtroom. I would say 99% of all my work is preparation work before I've ever gotten into a courtroom. People don't realize how much you need to do to set the groundwork beforehand. And if you've won or lost a case, it's usually because of the prep that you've done beforehand. And in your role of dealing in, in you know, contentious issues, mm. obviously that's all about detail, isn't it? And, you know, really looking at the fine detail and, and where the argument might be. A lot of our cases are based on facts. So you'll get cases where an important question of fact is, is what's in dispute here. So one person said this or didn't say that, or this person had legal capacity or didn't. And those are all very fact specific. A lot of the work is going through those details, finding the evidence that we need, and then presenting that to the court in the most persuasive way possible. 
Back to the TV situation and the movies. How can accurate legal portrayals be balanced with the need for drama and entertainment in TV and film? Because maybe, you know, your actual run of the mill life in the courtroom, as you say, you know, it would be maybe two seasons long before you actually got to the court. They obviously need to to whip up the drama and the excitement for the audience. But how can you carefully balance that uh, with with real life? Yeah, I, I will say I'm not going to be too harsh on Hollywood scriptwriters. I know that what they're trying to do at the end of the day is produce interesting and entertaining content. So I don't begrudge them that. I would say if you are producing a script that involves a legal drama, make sure you get some lawyers to help you. Ideally, some who have actual courtroom experience. Steven Spielberg, I know you're listening to this podcast right now and uh, I'm available for hire if you need me. Um, <laughs> well, he does listen. I'm he does. Oh, I'm sure he's facts, a big yeah. fan. I, I have it on firsthand authority. Um, <laughs> but no, I would say it's probably more up to the lawyers really to do that job. Like I say, from my perspective, I always address things head on with clients from the start, managing those expectations. One of the ways that I do that actually is by writing content. So we've got um, a website blog. I would like to write blogs about pop culture and the law. And I think it's one of the ways that we as lawyers can actually help address that and bring some clarity about what's actually real and, and what might be faked for Hollywood purposes. So the big question then, let's go to the Barbie movie as, yeah. a, as a case in point here now. Um, it is the question on everyone's lips. How does the law affect Barbie and Ken? Can Ken legally move into Barbie's mansion? The Barbie movie, I don't think anybody at the start of the summer would have realized we'd all be talking about a movie about a children's toy, but here we are. I saw it on opening weekend and I was really impressed by how they managed to make so much out of a a children's toy movie, essentially. I thought it'd be interesting to look at it from the point of view of the law. So I asked the question, what did the Barbie movie get right or wrong about the law? And, And like you said, my question was, well, was Ken allowed to move into Barbie's house or not? One of the most controversial ways I tried to find of justifying Ken moving in was that he could have Barbie declared dead. And that was on the basis that she disappeared. And I see her face and I've gotten so many reactions from that. How could you kill Barbie? What's what's important to say is actually um, there is a process in England and Wales for having someone declared dead, even though they might not be dead. In this case, we know Barbie isn't. All we know is that she's been taken away by the evil Mattel Corporation and, and put into this box to be locked away forever. Well, Ken could come back to Barbie land and say, actually, I know that Barbie's been taken away. She's never coming back. Try to argue that she might as well be declared dead and then try and move into her house afterwards. So that was one of the ways that I thought he might be clever. Um, One of the ways that might be a bit less clever, I thought Ken could perhaps create some fraud. So he could go in and play with the title deeds and fudge it so it looked like he was the owner of the property. Now, obviously, that is not a good idea. You don't want to be committing fraud like that. We've actually acted for cases where you might be surprised, but people have tried to do that, have tried to go in when someone's either lost capacity or been missing for a bit and and essentially fudge the title deeds so that they became the owner of the property. Not a very good idea at all. We've been able to overturn that and reverse those transactions but it takes it takes some time so if ken tried to do that he might get away for it for a bit but if you had a good lawyer on your case um it wouldn't it wouldn't fly 
it could be an interesting sequel, couldn't it? Where uh, Ken and Barbie get the the family lawyers in. Yes. And, uh, when it all goes wrong. <laughs> Definitely. No, I look forward to that one. I've got some colleagues in our family law team who I'm sure would love to have a stab at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's 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 another uh, another topic for the for the sequel. Definitely. Well, thank you, Nicholas, for resolving that uh, tricky legal situation for us. And um, well, I'm never going to be able to watch legal proceedings again. I'll always be wondering if you're shouting at the TV or not. Yes, I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Ian. This is The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. I'm Ian Brannan, and every episode we like to explore one of the themes that Clarion excel in. And in this episode, let's chat about taking your business overseas with Richard Moran, a senior Clarion partner. Hi, Richard. Welcome to The Purple Chair. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about moving your business out into other markets, breaking into new places overseas. What are the key barriers to trading internationally? I think the starting point is the fear of the unknown. It's that opportunity to do something that could revolutionise your business. And yet it feels quite intimidating because it's going to a new place. Actually, the law isn't where the question starts. The question starts with a commercial opportunity. Sometimes it's about understanding and evaluating that opportunity. And then it's getting into language, culture, regulations, a whole host of questions that come up. So as a a lawyer, the presumption that all we do is draft contracts or appear in court is perhaps a very narrow way of looking at what we do. What we do is connect people and we, we invest time in finding people that can help solve problems and help people open up new ideas and new markets, which is quite an exciting thing, actually. It must, you know, obviously it's quite a task keeping on top of law and and changes to law and practices in this country, but keeping across everything that's happening across different parts of the world. Of course, uh, Brexit might have affected things as well. But how do you manage the difference in law with all these different countries that you are dealing with? It's quite a challenge. It's it's a big enough challenge keeping up with the law in your own in, in the thing you're trained in in your own country. And we'll have in our business dual qualified lawyers who are dual qualified England and Scotland. But that's really as far as it goes. And actually what we would do is we would find lawyers in other jurisdictions that we build long term relationships with, and those lawyers work in the same way we do in the context of their own jurisdiction. And that is In practical terms, while we may have general experience of those countries, you won't have a UK lawyer advising on the law in that relevant country. It is perhaps worth saying, though, that firstly, the thing's going in your favour if you're trying to take, take business overseas. Firstly, English language. And secondly, a huge amount of contracting is written under English law. So you still need the local laws to apply in the country's that you're working in, but your starting point could well be an English law contract. So if I own a company now that's looking to move into a a different country, let's say Germany, I'm looking at Clarion, obviously Yorkshire born and bred, and you might be wondering, well, what are Clarion going to know about law in Germany and and, and to, you know, help me out when I I arrive in Munich? But that is something that you definitely can help with. And, And that's the point, really, that the help that you need overseas is right here in Yorkshire. Yes, that's right. So there might be a sort of default assumption that you need to speak to a a law firm or an accountancy firm that has an office here and an office in Munich, in your example. Actually, within our business, uh, we've got German-speaking lawyers. In fact, we've got a German-qualified lawyer. And we will have best friend law firms in each of the jurisdictions you're likely to want to be working in. So what does that mean? It means a firm like us 
It means a firm that is working in the same way as we are to generate business opportunities or solve problems for people. And we're able to connect people in, in any way that we need to and very quickly. And we do that by investing in those relationships with those organisations. So how do we go about doing that when they're all around the world? We attend various international conferences. So this year, the International Bar Association Conference is in Paris. There'll be seven lawyers from Clarion attending that conference. Why do we do that? Partly to understand, partly to meet new law firms, and partly just to catch up with the law firms like us who are doing exactly the same thing. And by doing those things, it means we're able to pick up the phone, solve a problem, get something sorted for somebody in a way that they perhaps might not anticipate when you're a firm based just in the UK. Culture and language are obvious differences. And I used an example there of, of say, Germany, but I know people who have expanded their businesses into regions such as China or other places in the Far East where the culture and and the language and the expectations are are much different, as are the standards required as well. So how do you manage those sort of situations with with businesses moving into into, real foreign markets that are the other side of the world from here? Yeah, so huge cultural differences. And often that creates a fear and a barrier to, to trying to do things. So we'll use a mixture of things there to, to bring experience to it. We don't necessarily know how that business does the thing it does. So if it manufactures, how it manufactures. But we will be able to, so we have Chinese speakers in the business, we will take business to Singapore. And in doing those things, that cultural barrier can be broken down by communication and understanding. And often the cultural barrier is a bigger question than any of the others, actually. I guess the the real point is the starting point is come and talk to us and challenge us to help you do that. And in most cases, we will be able to find an answer for you. A lot of it comes from working with organisations like the Department for Business and Trade. And actually, in our experience, a lot of it comes from bringing clients together who have been to similar places or done similar things because that practical experience is utterly invaluable. And that could save you making some difficult commercial decisions that might not work out. It's, it's worth its weight in gold. So what do we spend our time doing? Bringing people together who can share those experiences and learn from them. And in sharing those experiences, then what would be the frequently asked questions, I guess, that people come and ask you about when they're talking about trading in other parts of the world? The opening question is always, where do I start? <laughs> yeah. uh, because they may have an idea. If they've worked out why commercially they want to get to trade in a certain part of the world, that's a great starting point. But often it will depend on what they're trying to do. So it could be seeing that as a market for their products. It could be that there's a supply chain challenge. They want to bring product in from those countries. Or it could be that they want to set up in that place. So whether that's a factory, an office for a technology business, So it's any number of things which will bring a whole different set of questions and challenges. But if you look at those places, if you look at the US as an example, it's a huge, huge place. The first question is, where do I start? And what works in the UK organisationally may not apply so easily in the US. Different models will operate in different countries. How would you decide which bit of the US to start in, for example? There's 50 states with 50 sets of rules. That's quite complicated. It is indeed. And so maybe to answer that, that top question then, where, where do people start? 
do some research, to mm. talk to people who've been there and done it. And not that they'll have all the answers necessarily, but some of the some of the state laws are more usual to work with. For example, in the US, pick up the phone and talk to your advisors. Come and talk to us, um, and we can point you in the right direction for good conversations that will help you make informed decisions as to where you want to go. And on to that point then, how can Clarion help with the process of trading overseas? I mean, you've alluded to there, it's more than just the the litigation and and filling out the forms. You you can provide some practical advice as well. Absolutely. On a whole host of levels, really. If you're already established in countries, you'll be thinking about your intellectual property protection in those countries. Just because you've got protection in this country doesn't mean you'll have it in, in the other countries you're operating in. From a regulatory point of view, we'll talk to many of our clients about regulatory and governance reviews across multiple countries, and we're able to facilitate and organise that so that they get a consistent approach and comply with the relevant legislation. And I guess commercially, being able to help them with how to set up. So in a post-Brexit world, that's involved many of our clients thinking about how they set up organisationally within the European Union to be able to operate. They've often picked Ireland and the Netherlands as the most obvious entry points back into Europe. But a lot of trade is getting done with the likes of Poland and Germany. I guess the answer is there's no one-size-fits-all approach to it, but conversations will open up opportunity. Similarly, what will be the pitfalls, the things to avoid? If you offer a one word of advice, a, a word of caution to anybody looking to go overseas, what will be the thing that they should really pay particular attention to? And what do you deal with most when, you, when you're having to help a business out of a situation overseas? I guess the, the initial advice would be don't rush in. Mm. <laughs> Discuss which ways will work and which ways will work in which countries, as it won't be the same in each each country. I guess the risk is you find yourself in trouble or in court or facing a claim or unable to recover goods or money because there wasn't a plan. It just seemed like an easy thing to go and do. There's always solutions, but by and large, planning will mitigate the the risks. So yeah, my advice is don't rush in, but equally, don't be scared of doing it. Okay. And if you are going to do it, then someone listening to this right now needs help with expanding their business internationally. How do they get in touch? Well, they can get in touch with me. Um, they get in touch with anybody at Clarion and just ask the question, how could you help me do this? I think we'd be able to find a number of ways in which we could assist anybody. Okay, and you can make the magic happen. Well, thanks a lot uh, for joining us, Richard, and um, all the best with your uh, your international endeavours. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. To find out more about how Clarion can help you or your business, head to clarionsolicitors.com. Until next time, from me, Ian Brannan, and my guests, Richard, Nicholas, Melissa, and Brandon, goodbye. Goodbye.